CP Podcast 88. So in a recent discussion with members, I found myself talking about my time working as an MSK physiotherapist in A&E, in a specific soft tissue injury clinic for acute injuries. So people asked, how did it go? What did you do? So I thought I'd share my experiences in this podcast episode and perhaps talk about some of the key injuries I saw. If you're ready, let's dive in. Okay, so to start with, what was the clinic? So imagine that you are a patient and you've just injured your knee, for example. What would you do? You'd go to A&E, you would be assessed by a doctor or perhaps a nurse practitioner, and you might even have an x-ray to see if there's any bony injury to your knee. And from there, you would think to yourself, well, it's not fractured. I've had the x-ray, there's no fracture, but I need some help. Now, a nurse practitioner or a doctor excellent MSK skills in assessment, but not necessarily in terms of rehab. That's where we come in as physiotherapists. So I would be a physiotherapist who wouldn't necessarily give people advice there and then because they've had their initial advice about managing swelling, using crutches perhaps. But instead, patients would be referred to me a week after their injury. So I would see them at, let's say, day six, day seven, day eight, day nine, something like that, pretty soon after the injury to effectively screen for any major injuries that perhaps weren't picked up at A&E or perhaps weren't officially diagnosed at A&E and or to give people advice. And what I would probably have ended up doing is one of two things in that soft tissue injury clinic. Either, number one, picking up a major injury or the chances of a major injury and referring that person on to have an MRI scan or to see an orthopedic surgeon. Or option two, referring into the main physiotherapy department within the hospital that I worked at, in which this individual was effectively screened that I don't think there's a major injury that's happened, but you do need rehabilitation for your Achilles tendinopathy or for your general ankle sprain. So I would refer the patient into the physiotherapy department so that they could have physiotherapy ongoing from that point onwards. So this really highlights one of the key things about the skills of a physiotherapist is that we have that unique ability to assess and decide on management. And that was one of my key roles. The nurse practitioner or doctor would rule out a fracture of the knee, the ankle, the shoulder, but then they wouldn't necessarily know what do I do next. And so that's where a physiotherapist would come in. You know, they would say, they would refer this patient to me saying, uh, Khalid, please see this 32-year-old individual who was playing netball on the weekend when she twisted and f- had a significant injury to her knee. I can confirm that there's no fracture on the x-ray. However, I would be grateful for your guidance as to further injury assessment and appropriate management. And that's brilliant because it really sets us up as a genuine expert in this environment where we can see, is there anything serious going on? If yes, this is how we're going to manage this individual. If no, this is how we're going to manage this individual. So I'll happily talk you through that in terms of this podcast. But just to start with, we've got great skills. And this was a really brilliant environment to work in because I think people respected me and understood where my skills were. Now, you potentially have already noticed a really key bit of this soft tissue injury clinic, which was that 
I didn't see fracture patients in this clinic. So one of the key criteria is that they could only refer to my clinic if there was no bony injury. Now, sometimes you have to rely on the skills of the doctor or nurse practitioner to do that without taking an x-ray because we can't x-ray everyone. But that's okay because they will have assessed the patient, for example, if they've had a, a genuine ankle sprain and they've gone through their Otto rules to see, right, is the patient able to put weight on it? Yes, they are. Are they able to take more than four weight-bearing steps? Yes, they are. Okay, in that case, it's unlikely that we're going to need to really x-ray this patient as opposed to x-raying the patient, seeing that there's a fracture. And in that case, the patient would be referred on to a fracture clinic. They would be referred on to see the orthopedic consultants for genuine orthopedic management before that patient went on to have rehab. So that's one really important point to start off with. So next, let me talk through some of the injuries that I might have seen. First of all, knees. Knees were by far and away the most common injury I saw in this clinic. And the main reason for that was for assessment purposes. As I may have alluded to a second ago, a doctor or nurse practitioner would have assessed the patient, would have ruled out a fracture, but wouldn't be confident enough to say, do they have an ACL injury? Do they have a meniscal injury? Do they just have patellofemoral pain that's been exacerbated? Is there something different going on? And so knees were the main part of my clinic mainly for the diagnostic and assessment process. Okay, so what would I do? Well, first of all, these appointments were between 15 and 20 minutes long max. So not long. So what does that mean? Well, it gives me about five to 10 minutes to assess the patient subjectively, five to 10 minutes to assess them objectively, couple of minutes to write my notes. And then right at the end, I would have had an admin period where I could refer the patient to a consultant, refer the patient to the physiotherapy department or whatever. Remember also, these people are injured. So they're not going to, you know, quickly run from the waiting area into your clinic room. Sometimes it would be that it would take two minutes just to get the patient from the waiting area to sitting in the chair or lying on the plinth for me to be able to assess them. So time was short. And therefore, this really helped me hone in on my subjective assessment skills and, of course, my objective assessment skills. When you're put under that time pressure, and I'm not suggesting that every physiotherapist should have that time pressure. Actually, it's a gift when we can spend more time with people. But when you're in that quick triage kind of environment, getting speed into your assessment and therefore speed into your clinical reasoning was really important. So from a subjective point of view, let's start with. I always made sure that I asked the patient exactly what happened in their injury. And I would act it out for them. Obviously, I wasn't going to get them to stand up and show me what how they twisted. But I would stand there. They, the patient would tell me the story and I'd say, OK, so I'm just going to recreate this. If I'm standing here, you turned this way and the individual tackled you from this side or there was no one around you. So I would I would put myself in that moment and try and really look at exactly what happened. And the reason for that was because there's common mechanisms of injury that we can sometimes relate to certain pathologies. So for example, MCL injury, more likely to be a valgus injury. And one of the key injuries that you'll see here is a block tackle in football. So this is where two individuals are trying to tackle the ball at the same time. 
and they're doing this with a side-on foot position and it means that one person is stronger than the other and what it effectively does is pushes the foot of the injured player back, their knee stays forward and of course they're in a sideways position so it strains the medial side of the knee. But I would need to act that out with them to try and anticipate that. We think about ACL injuries, we think about uncontrolled landings, we think about a valgus twist perhaps, non-contact, pivoting injury, changing direction. So I acted that out with them. With meniscal injuries, we commonly think about a twisting injury on a flexed knee. So flexed at 90 degrees or even a little bit more. So I would need to act that out and see, right, was the patient standing upright? Were they fully extended? Were they squatting? Something like that. So I would act that out with them and make sure I had a really good understanding of what happened. And then, of course, you need to ask your first set of questions. What happened immediately after the injury? Did we see lots of swelling? We know that ACL injuries, for example, do swell quickly with a large hemarthrosis, which means blood within the joint, because of the fact that ACLs have a really good blood supply. With meniscal injuries, they can bleed quickly if there's been a tear in the outer layer of the meniscus which has a reasonable blood supply but the vast majority of meniscal injuries don't tear in an area where there's a good blood supply the inner section of the meniscus doesn't have a good blood supply for example so these injuries wouldn't swell quickly and the patients would say yes it it didn't swell at the time but the next day it appeared to me much more swollen I'd ask them about whether or not they were able to play on. I would ask them whether or not there was a pop sound. I'd be asking what's been happening since then. Have you been needing to use crutches? Have you been needing to take painkillers? Have you been feeling unstable? Have you noticed a buckling at your knee? These questions are all important to try and ascertain what the diagnosis is for that particular patient. Now, of course, there were injuries that didn't turn out to be anything like that. So, for example... I would have a hypothetical situation, 40 to 50 year old individual who had really significant knee pain standing up from a chair. Now, no one's going to tear their ACL just standing up. However, for a nurse practitioner or a doctor, they may not have had the confidence to say, oh, I I'm, I'm, can definitely rule out an ACL injury or something like that. Because you know what, the patient might say something like, yeah, I stood up from the chair and I felt like I... It felt like it gave way as I stood up from the chair and I felt like I twisted it. And, you know, that's where we as physiotherapists need to be able to come in and really dig in and really understand the differences between what happens when you have an ACL injury and what happens when you have a sudden flare up of patellofemoral pain or osteoarthritis, for example. So let's talk about that. So with an ACL injury, common story, sports high level of trauma or high level of force, non-contact injury, commonly twisting and turning, perhaps pivoting injury, significant swelling immediately. Let's compare that to a genuine example that I had. I remember having a, as I said, 40 or 50 year old uh, lady stood up quickly from a chair, already had pre-existing knee pain, which was a question that, you know, someone else may not have ascertained. And no twisting involved, Really sudden and sharp pain, couldn't wait bear on it. So they came to A&E, had an x-ray, no fracture on x-ray. But what is going on? And that's where seeing a physiotherapist a week later actually was really good because that would allow for pain to settle a little bit, 
weight bearing to improve a little bit right now they've been able to practice with crutches for a few days and now they're partially weight bearing but they're putting more control during down in their leg swelling has gone down pain has improved a little bit they've got more range of movement and as a physiotherapist that's a great time to see this patient because we can give them advice reassure them refer them on to the physiotherapy department so that they can see someone and get some advice rather than I think you need to see an orthopedic surgeon. And naturally, the two of those things are very different management plans, both for the patient, but also for the service. You know, you don't want to be referring every single patient to an orthopedic surgeon who doesn't need one. So one key thing that I did want to mention was, I mean, I've already talked about the fact that we need to make sure that the patient hasn't had a fracture. One really key learning that I took having a great conversation with the A&E consultant. He just walked into my clinic one day. He said, oh, who have you had today? And I said, oh, these are the notes for my first one. He's had a look and he said, right, so they had a swollen knee. And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, why is it swollen? I said, oh, well, uh, well, I, I didn't think that there was an ACL injury. I didn't think there was a major meniscal injury. I'm not really sure why it was particularly swollen I thought it was kind of just an aggravation of osteoarthritis but I'm not sure why it was really swollen and he said well in that case if they had an x-ray I said no I, I don't think the A&E doctor thought that it needed an x-ray well he said well it does because it was really swollen and he said there's got to be a reason why that patient has had large swelling at their knee you can't just rule that out you can't just ignore that and it really dawned on me that Actually, that's correct. There's got to be a reason why there's been so much swelling at their knee now. Could it be a missed tibial plateau fracture or an insufficiency fracture? Tibial plateaus fractures are really interestingly called sometimes silent fractures because when you look at an x-ray, it's really difficult to see them some of the time and the signs are not clear and obvious like if you've had a, a massive lateral distal fibula fracture. So that really taught me a lesson. If the patient hasn't had an x-ray, but they present with a lot of swelling, I was sending them back to have an x-ray. Now, I was really lucky that I had a great relationship with the orthopedic knee consultants at my hospital. And naturally, I was you know, working with their patients all the time. I actually had a secondary role working in the uh, acute injury post-op clinic of the consultant. So I would go in with the knee consultant and, and actually spend time with him assessing the patients with him. And so I had a great relationship. And one of the key learnings from that was that when I had patients a week post ACL injury, and let's say it wasn't diagnosed at this stage, sometimes it would be so painful, so swollen, patients are really guarding. You do your Lachman's test, you do your anterior draw test, and sometimes it's not possible to be confident in the result of your test as for those reasons. But just because we're not confident in the test because it doesn't feel quite normal or we're not quite sure, it doesn't mean that we can just say, right, they don't have an ACL injury. And this was another huge learning for me is that the subjective history for this injury is so crucial and that my consultant who I worked with was more than happy for me to refer to his clinic on the subjective history alone. So I would be able to refer to him saying, Dear Mr. X, I have a 29-year-old individual who is playing football on the weekend and I suspect that he may have an ACL injury. My reasons for this are he had a non-contact twisting injury on the football pitch as he was playing. 
He also noticed significant sudden swelling within five minutes of his injury. He was unable to play on, and in the week since then, he's been gradually using crutches, but he doesn't feel stable on his knee. With these things in mind, I haven't been able to confidently rule out an ACL injury with my Lachman's test and anterior draw test because of difficulty with testing. So as a result, I was hoping to refer him to your clinic for consideration of an MRI scan and further assessment. And I was really lucky that I was able to build that trust with him, that with the surgeon, with the consultant, that he would know that I was uh, doing the right thing there and, and he could work with me knowing that I didn't have to have absolute certainty in the physical tests and that's really important and if you can frame it if you can develop a relationship with a consultant like that and have the understanding between the two of you that they've been able to teach you the key things your orthopedic consultant he or she is able to guide you through this is what I'm looking for this is how it presents this is what it looks like and your consultant can build that relationship with you it really allows you to manage patients better as a result rather than you know sending referrals through and then the consultant says no I don't accept that that's not right you haven't tested this you haven't tested that so that's really important okay so the next injury I think I'll talk about is shoulder injuries now we didn't get a huge amount of these often you'd find that if a patient had a, a, a real injury it would often be a fracture particularly in the over 40s particularly the over 60s age group but sometimes you would have patients who would just present to A&E with excruciating shoulder pain. So maybe even non-traumatic. Might have been traumatic, may have been non-traumatic. But they had loads of shoulder pain. And, you know, as listen, shoulders are often scary for MSK physios. I can absolutely tell you they're scary for junior doctors and nurse practitioners who haven't seen a lot of them. After they've ruled out a fracture... You know, if, as difficult as it is for us to sometimes assess them, and this is no disrespect to my colleagues in A&E, they're fantastic clinicians, but in the same way that wounds and lacerations are not the strength of an MSK physio, shoulder diagnosis is not the strength of a nurse practitioner or a junior doctor in A&E. So I think shoulder injuries is where I would often get more variety, where I would often get non-traumatic injuries because naturally they would be unsure about what was going on. So... That was probably the first question. Is this patient's shoulder pain from a traumatic injury or non-traumatic injury? Examples of non-traumatic injuries. Oh, my shoulder was so sore because I did loads of DIY on the weekend. I was cutting it. I was trimming my hedge and there was a specific moment where I trimmed it. I, I pulled the, the hedge trimmers and it hurt my shoulder. And someone might say, oh, that's traumatic. That's not a trauma. That, that's that's a, an injury, but it's not a massive trauma. So that would be the first question. So cuff tears, how would we diagnose these? Well, we're, again, a week is sometimes a good period of time to assess this over to see if the symptoms improve of the patient in that one week following the injury. But sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes I would assess the patient after one week and say, do you know what? I think you need more time. Can I get you to come back next week or in two weeks time? So I would do a second review of these patients between two and three weeks because sometimes that just gave them a little bit more time to improve their active range of movement or to, in fact, not improve their active range of movement and they still had really poor strength and that would make me say, right, I think they might actually have a rotator cuff here. I better refer them on. So some of the key diagnostic points, rotator cuff tears. Most commonly, the textbook presentation would be 
that they had reasonable passive range of movement but really poor active range of movement because it's the active rotator cuff tendons which control the active movement rather than passive. And textbook, they would have poor resisted strength on rotator cuff testing. Now, one of the problems with really irritable shoulder pain is that it can be really difficult to actively move the shoulder because it's so painful. And in that situation, they don't want you to move it passively either because it's so sore and they're guarding. And so that some, you know, sometimes we paint the textbook picture about cuff tears whereby they have 160 degrees of passive range of movement, but they have 30 degrees of active. Don't get me wrong, those do happen. But often it's not as clear cut as that. I would often see patients where they would have maybe 90 degrees of passive before, oh, it's really sore, please don't move my shoulder anymore with 40 to 50 degrees of active. And actually, you could argue that that was a cuff tear, but you could also definitely argue that that was a really irritable rotator cuff tendinopathy. Because if you've hurt your shoulder and it's really sore, you would present in the same way. Passively, you might have a bit more movement, but it's really sore and you don't want people to move it. So that was why sometimes we would need to wait two weeks, three weeks to get this patient back in double check them. And again, it's about having that relationship with your consultants for me to be able to ask them, if I have this patient, are you okay with me waiting three weeks before I refer them on to see you so that I can see them a couple of times? And they would say, yes, that's okay. An example of an injury that they weren't happy to do that was a distal biceps tendon rupture. So with distal biceps tendon ruptures at the elbow, this was commonly an injury whereby the surgeons would need to operate on them quite quickly if they were going to repair it. So the reason being for that is that if the distal biceps tendon retracts, if it moves superiorly too far after the distal biceps tendon rupture, it makes the surgery really difficult because they have to really try and find the tendon and pull it down and it's too stretched and therefore it's too weak, etc., etc which is not always the case with cuff tears. So that having that knowledge for them to be able to say to me, Khalid, if you have this injury, I'm happy for you to leave it a little bit, like if you suspect or you're not sure if there's a cuff tear, but this injury, distal biceps tendon rapture, please don't hang around. If you think that it's happened, refer it through. And if it's not there, we'll, we'll take that and, and we'll assess them and guide them. But if you suspect it, please refer them through quickly because I can't hang around with this. And so having that understanding was was really, really important. And of course, irritable tendinopathy, it might be, okay, great, I've seen that at week three, it isn't so sore for you, that's really good. What I want you to do is go back to the physio department, let's see you for sessions there, here's some advice, make sure that you're taking the weight off it, deload to reload, so change the amount, reduce the amount of activity and load that you're putting through your shoulder, and then the physios will help you to reintroduce it. Here are some basic exercises. Don't make them too painful. Don't make them really irritable because it would just flare your shoulder up. So make sure these are done at a level that's manageable for you, comfortable for you. You have permission to change the reps and sets to make it easier for you, and so on and so forth. So I think the final injury I'll quickly mention in this podcast is ankle injuries. And as I said, patients would have had an x-ray, so they would have ruled out a fracture. However, if they've had a significant sprain, then the A&E team would want me to see them. So what would we do with these patients? Well, one of the first things to make sure of is that they are 
using their crutches correctly. The number of ankle sprains who are not told in A&E that they do need to be getting weight on their ankle when they possibly can and making sure that they use the soft tissue structures and get them moving because that will contribute to healing. Number of ankle sprains that I would see after one week who would not even put their foot on the floor yet because it's much quicker to just, you know, ride through my crutches and, and hop, as it were. That's much quicker than putting my weight down. I've got busy day. I've got places to be. I've got to hop around. So that was always a really important thing. Uh, we would speak to them about, of course, the need to elevate their ankle. Ice is an interesting one where the recent guidelines from Verberg suggest that ice isn't necessarily a good thing to do, but elevating is and compressing is. And uh, we would also want to make sure that these patients were moving their ankle and that they would be practicing the base, the most basic exercises you can think of, doing small circles, moving in up and down into, into dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, trying to write their name in the air because that encouraged a little bit of inversion and eversion. As you can potentially imagine, inversion and eversion are much more difficult when you've had a lateral ankle sprain or a medial ankle sprain compared to dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. They tend to come a little bit more naturally. So it was about looking at those things. So what commonly went wrong with these ankle sprains? Well, there's two major things, really. One is an avulsion fracture, and the second one is a syndesmosis injury. So an avulsion fracture is actually managed the majority of the time in the same way that a sprain is. It doesn't need surgery for an avulsion fracture. However, it would be really painful for patients. And generally speaking, these patients wouldn't be given an orthopedic boot or a moon boot or an air cast boot to mobilize in because we want to try and get the ankle moving. We don't want it to stiffen up. But they would come to see me a week after. I'd give them some advice, come back in a two weeks once you've had the chance to try and settle it down. And they'd come back and it was still really, really super sore. Couldn't put any weight from it. I can hardly put any weight through it. So as well as referring them through to physio, at that stage, we might have given these patients an air cast boot, a moon boot, to just reduce some of their pain levels. Because we manage it in the same way. They don't need surgery. They don't need fixation. But the pain might be what's stopping them to progress. So sometimes these patients would be given the air cast boot and... Over the next few weeks, that would hopefully encourage them to start putting weight through their ankle and then gradually they can take it away. And the other thing was a syndesmosis injury. So a syndesmosis injury is where you have a rupture or significant injury, not to the lateral ankle ligaments, not to the medial ankle ligaments, but to the distal or the inferior tibiofibular ligaments. These are the ligaments that bind the tibia and the fibula just above the ankle joint proper. And so when they have this, these individuals can have pain at the lateral ankle, but you'll commonly see that they'll point to the front of their ankle, just proximal to the ankle joint, because that's where the syndesmosis is. And so we would see right, when they've got pain there, when they've had a significant fall from a height, that was commonly an injury that may have brought on a syndesmosis injury. And you could do things like a Kliger's test um, or, or a compression test, as it's sometimes referred to, where you put axial weight through the ankle. So you push down through the knee and push up through the heel so that you're putting weight through the ankle and then you evert or externally rotate the foot. What that does is it causes the tibia and fibula to separate and increases pain in that area at the distal 
tibia fibula when your patient does have syndesmosis injury because those ligaments to hold them together are not there because they've been ruptured. So it pushes them apart and increases pain in that region. And you can also do a squeeze test, squeezing at the um, mid to distal tibia fibula complex, and that can also increase the pain there, which in that kind of anterior ankle region, which can alert you to that. And how do we investigate that further? I would need to, if I suspected it, I would need to send the patient back to have a an X-ray weight bearing, because the weight bearing X-ray is where you have weight going down through the tibia and fibula, which might cause that separation of the tibia and fibula on the X-ray. And so, the radiographer, uh, the radiologist, or the the uh, ankle consultant looking at that X-ray is looking to see is there a separation between the tibia and fibula that might indicate the syndesmosis injury. And if that was the case, then they would go to see the orthopedic team for, for further management for their orthopedic injury. So hopefully that's a really quick run through of my time working in the soft tissue clinic in A&E. Uh, I really enjoyed working in this environment. It was fun. It was cool injuries for want of a better phrase, really helped me improve my skills. So if you feel that there's a space for that in your hospital if you find that patients are not getting the right pathways if they're coming to you too late after an A&E visit where they were just said oh just go away and see physio at some point why not speak to the A&E team why not speak to the orthopedic consultants and see if there's a role for a physiotherapist in that soft tissue injury clinic to be the middle person to assess is there a big injury that's gone on here right where do I need to send the patient or actually has there not been a major injury but this patient still needs help go to the physiotherapy department and if as a physiotherapist you can place yourself in that situation it can really help your team can really help your patients and really helps you because you get great development as well so I really hope you enjoyed that guys look forward to seeing you soon here on the CP podcast